You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. This week, I'm excited to introduce a one-on-one chat between our co-founder, Des Trainer and our vice president of engineering, Dara Curran. Dara believes shipping is your company's heartbeat, and he's built an engineering culture where we're doing just that well over 100 times a day. He joined Intercom originally four and a half years ago as a senior Ruby engineer in our second outside technical hire. Fast forward to today, and Dara scaled our engineering team to more than 90 employees. In his chat with Des, Dara learns insight in how he's gone about growing his team. One of our explicit principles is to like hire for potential and help each other to grow. The engineering principles at the team's core. A very well-polished sliver trumps a big, fat, janky slice of a thing. So while we do think big and we have these grand visions for what a thing should be, we always start small. And why we take such a collaborative approach to product building. Engineers, designers, and PMs being together means that they're closer and have, along with delivering software regularly, have tight feedback loops and do that iteration thing towards the right solution rather than guessing. So let's hop into the studio with Des and Dara. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by our Vice President of Engineering, Dara Curran. Hi, Dara. Hi, Des. It's good to have you on the show. You're legally employed to be here. Uh, Tell us, how many engineers did Intercom have when you started, and how many do we have today? It was four when we started, when I started. Right. Ben, myself, and four founders. Right. And it's 80 or 90 today. And 80 or 90 now, that's quite a change. Um, You recently wrote, when you were celebrating your fourth year with us, that... uh, you were pretty convinced on day one after a pull request of all things that you joined the right company. What was that about? Uh, so I guess there's a little bit more to that, but uh, specifically what that was about. Before, in fact, I'd started and I'd got access to Intercom and was trying things out, like really keen and eager to get started. I was playing with the product and I, something annoyed me, a little detail. There was like bad spacing on the login form or something. And I wanted to fix it. And at Amazon and previous companies, the way in which we'd make changes involved some deliberate peer review. So sharing uh, explicitly the change you wanted to make with your peers and getting feedback on that. And before I joined Intercom, while some of that might have happened informally, it wasn't a deliberate process. And this tiny little detail that annoyed me was an opportunity to like, propose introducing that to, to the team, specifically to Kieran and Ben and David. And the idea behind like deliberate code review is that it's a really great opportunity for us as engineers to uh, improve upon our work, to learn from the experience of others, and to help like educate people on the changes we're making. And to me, what it represents is an environment that appreciates respectful and critical feedback on the work we do. So for engineers, this is like the core tool, the channel that that happens in. And the confirmation I got on like joining being the right thing was just it was almost a meta version of that. The fact that I could make a change that introduced this change and it was well received kind of confirmed to me that there was like a healthy, progressive mindset in the people I was joining. Excellent. I mean, I, I remember from my perspective thinking we worked so hard to recruit you and your first 
significant contribution was to remove some white space. So uh, <laughs> it was definitely felt on both sides. I mean, thinking back to those times, like, you know, obviously you were first engineering hire, first experience engineering hire for sure. And there's not a lot of management of engineering to be happening when it's basically like yourself and our CTO, Kieran, or whatever. So you're obviously working on a lot of features. Yeah. Does like does anything stand out from that period? Anything you worked on that you actually remembered it was interesting? Yeah, like I had a glance back and a lot of things were, you know, the thousand small things, housekeeping, small little changes, tweaking and iterating. I also worked on what is a small but very important thing, particularly given the business we're in on making sure our entire service was served exclusively over SSL. A fun product feature I worked on was enabling our customers to customize, personalize their messages with data that they held about their customers, which was a, a step change, I think, for the type of messaging that people did with Intercom. But possibly like the thing I'm like most proud of or most memorable for me at that time was the work I did on an internal tool we have called Muster. And Muster was basically a tool that manages our infrastructure and how we deploy. The reason, the motivation I had for building it was uh, even at the time we were quite a small team. It was, like I said earlier, four engineers working, but we're working at an incredibly fast pace, making dozens and dozens of changes a day. And the simple, small step of pushing those changes to Heroku, which is what we used at the time, was becoming tedious and troublesome. We would not realize we were pushing other people's changes. It was like a distraction to have to, you know, change and wait and type the command to deploy. We could all anticipate that our needs to move fast as a team scale would just increase and increase. So we invested in a tool that would enable us to like continuously deploy. So along with the deliberate peer review, once a peer uh, and you agreed that this change was good to go, and along with automated testing, we now had automated deployment. So we could focus more on building the product than on the tedious work of like safely deploying it. My understanding from a distance of Muster is it's basically the core of why we can ship so often. How often do we roll out these days? It's typically well over 100 times a day, like from changes from all, all engineers and all teams. It's fun to hear you talk about code from so long ago. Obviously, as we go into 90 engineers, when I called by your desk earlier last, I certainly didn't see much uh, code on the screen. How have you dealt with the gradual sort of moving away from writing code to doing things that are incredibly valuable, but definitely not writing code? I think if I'm honest, like it, it's been this, like it, it was never, a, there was never one sudden transition. It wasn't a point in time. In the early days, like you said earlier, the wasn't really much like management overhead within the team or anything. And we we all like loved engineering, we loved building product and that's what we focused on. And uh, as the team grew, there of course was a greater need for leadership and management within the team. And what happens and like kind of my philosophy on how, how these things go is that progressively over a period of time the work that I did was like very much steered towards leading and growing the team and not on contributing as an individual. So what that looks like in the middle is that you're working a lot around the periphery. You're you're never taking on the big critical thing on critical path. Instead, you're taking the often unglamorous or like small but frequent things that will unblock your team. And kind of the way I think about it is that you're investing your time in enabling your team to be effective, enabling them to grow and therefore grow the capacity of the team and like the output it can achieve rather than what is perhaps at the time more comfortable 
or easier to contribute that capacity yourself. That's kind of the biggest sort of mistake engineer turned managers turn to is that they try to engineer their way out of every management problem effectively. Yeah. Did you have to train yourself not to do that, like not to be like, just give me the keyboard, let me do this? Or like, was, was, was that your natural reaction or did it take a while? Yeah, like it, that default is very hard to avoid. In actual fact, like I think the worst version of that is to, you know, if, if you see someone struggling to just go and do it. Yeah. But there's some intermediate steps where like you're not fully detached, but you're getting to the outcome you want and using the kind of journey to it as an opportunity to teach someone or to like, so it might be tedious at the time because you feel like it could be quicker if you do it yourself. But I guess the philosophy or the idea would be that you do this two or three times and it starts to pay off. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's basically a long-term versus short-term efficiency, right? Like, yeah. Kind of like a almost a near joke question, but like given how distant you are from code like when did you last see a piece of code I'm, I'm always curious like do you have any clue how intercom works like? <laughs> good question I think no I, I know I, I still have a very good grasp of how intercom works I'm like I'm both through curiosity and through like my job anyway I'm exposed to a lot of the work for various different reasons I'll still end up looking at code and perhaps like interesting pull requests or interesting like uh, post-mortems on problems or whatever so that I can properly appreciate the challenges and how we solve them, etc. But uh, in terms of like writing features or it's actually years, uh, you know, and the period in between was where, again, I was doing a lot of this unglamorous or like work around the periphery. Two things I remember kind of in, in that recent-ish period were trying to close out on important refactoring to remove some technical debt, which I may or may not have been responsible for, but I was quite familiar with it and I wanted to just close that out. And I recall also, it's perhaps a year and a half ago, maybe longer, quite a serious uh, event, an incident that happened with our system where there was like sort of an all hands on deck uh, response. And I was randomly able to contribute a, a fix or a, a failing test or something that helped us overcome that. Right. And I, I guess at the time I was like, oh, cool, I can... I can still, I'm not too rough. Exactly. I don't know how. There's it life fair, in the old dog. I don't know how it fared today, to be honest. You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Every visitor to your site is a sales opportunity. Connect with them personally and convert them before they leave. Learn how at intercom.com/acquire. piece that I, I know you talk about a lot and it's printed all over our walls is like the, the sort of the principles as well so it's like there's people yes there's process yes the sort of the commonality I think you push for is like the principles that they work through yeah what are your main engineering principles or do you want to talk through the ones you care about most yeah the, the first one we talk about is to be deliberate and what this really means and it's it's here as a reminder because the default I think for a lot of people is to to not be this, but it it's just to be very thoughtful about how you spend your time and how you make decisions. Uh, if you're not you know if you're not actively doing that deliberately, uh, the reality is that you're uh, inadvertently passively like wasting time or making uh, inefficient decisions. So right, um, a really important one for me is like the idea to think big and also horizontally. So particularly as we've grown, the organization is structured into groups and teams and people are like very focused on one part. And of course, that's where they're going to put most of their energy. But we constantly want to remind people like to not constrain themselves to that explicit area of focus 
Uh, we all have the ability to contribute and improve and have impact beyond the team we're on. And thinking about it in that way uh, helps us spot opportunities where perhaps our team structure isn't best supporting the outcomes we want and we have opportunity to change that. Or perhaps a bit of product work or a bit of engineering work is might be right for the team but wrong for intercom and you've got to think holistically to figure that out. And if people aren't thinking like that, then you rely on process and management to like correct all those things. The other one which kind of sort of represented in the muster thing we talked about earlier and a couple other things, but it's the idea to uh, move fast but optimize for the long term. So again, this is one of these things that if you're not deliberate about, you lose. Uh, you definitely lose. So your ability to move fast as a team or an organization just by pure like physics almost like the as your organization grows it tends to disimprove and it's the kind of thing when you lose it it's almost impossible to like regain right the software like the team has grown the code has grown the systems are bigger uh, the amount of tests you have everything is bigger the process might be a bit more heavyweight and you can you can just bow down to that and let that knock you over or you can try to deliberately defend that ability that we talked about in the early days and to us, that's represented in our ability to ship code or our ability to make decisions. It manifests in like a, a bias to look towards like simplifying things and fighting against complexity and sort of the principle that like code is almost a liability. The less we have, the better. And the important thing being that you can make the trade-off between like being fast now and not caring about the future or being fast now because in the past you've cared about the future. And that's the... That's where we place ourselves. The next thing I care about is kind of the idea, I feel these all interleave in some way, but the idea to do less better. So the analogy here might be that like a very well-polished sliver trumps a big, fat, janky slice of a thing. So while we, we do think big and we have these grand visions for what a thing should be, we always start small on the most confirmed valuable piece and from there that smaller bit but doing it better gives us opportunities to learn build momentum and then ultimately we move faster towards the bigger goal another one which i kind of is there to sort of remind people where we came from and also what being an engineer at intercom is all about it's about building great product uh, so while we are software engineers the outcome success for us is producing great product is it, is it hard to get people you know I can imagine like different sides or different types of engineers. Some are like going to be primarily back end. Some are going to be like primarily front end. Yeah. Is it important that they all care about product? Like, is in if you're working on EC2 deployment, something or others, versus if you're working on like a user facing you know feature that's really obvious that everyone sees, like our messaging form or something like that. Does the principle apply consistently? Yeah, I I think it absolutely does. Like, there, there's two parts to that. First of all, like the engineers who join Intercom tend to travel around quite a lot within the team and like right. they're not confined to one problem or another. But aside from that, even the most back-end orientated folks still have to uh, make trade-offs and decisions in how they design their systems and like the maybe like a the classic trade-off might be or that you know designing a system that needs to respond in like milliseconds versus one that responds in minutes you'll build them in totally different ways they might cost or take more money or time but both of them are valid answers depending on what a customer right. need is so and then like i think a lot of good behaviors stem from 
empathy for the customer, understanding how people use the thing. Not only that, it's that kind of curiosity and understanding sort of fuels us as people. It's like the thing I did had an outcome and made something better. Uh, so for a whole number of reasons, I think the more we keep that connection, the better. One thing you talk about a lot is like the, you know, when you talk about hiring is like this idea of like hiring for the potential of people as opposed to, I guess, hiring for like perfect job fit. Like it seems like that there's possibly two ways you can go if you're hiring a certain role. You can hire for somebody who can grow into it or yeah. and maybe as a sharper incoming trajectory or you can hire for somebody who's definitely going to be effective on day one. How do you think about that? Uh, so again, like one of our explicit principles is to like hire for potential and help each other to grow. So we think about that very deliberately on the side of trying to identify people who demonstrate the potential for that steep trajectory over the people who appear to have the skills you need today. And I think the obviously the, the intersection of those two is, is great. Perfect, yeah. Uh, but if you have the latter without some elements of the former, the rate at which things change and the needs of your team change, if that person turns out not to be good at adapting or learning or growing um, you've got a problem the you? risk is like the company will outpace them at some point or just because they're good for like 200 engineers they might not be good at 600 engineers or something like that yeah, yeah. Or, or they'll become under a lot of pressure they'll fall behind them. people around them will out deliver them or always come ahead of them in opportunities to do things right. because yeah. uh, you know when new problems emerge you want someone that you, you're not going to have anyone who's done it before so you want someone you can trust can yeah. adapt um, some of that like to me sounds a lot like this idea of like the growth mindset which is you know something you're like pretty familiar with and, and considerate of you referenced it in your recent post about like four years of intercom and how it's something that you really value on people what's talk us through the growth mindset and why it matters to you uh, I guess I first came across the actual term growth mindset a few years ago I believe it was coined by Carol Dweck in a book called Mindset there's like this basic outline like people either have a, a fixed mindset where they kind of believe that you know, their ability or intelligence is somewhat static. Or people have a growth mindset where they believe intelligence or ability can be developed. I think like all the people that you're likely to want to hire probably demonstrate elements of the growth mindset, which is, uh, you know, someone who will embrace challenges, who will persist in the face of roadblocks, who sees effort as the path to mastery, uh, who like craves and learns from critical feedback and who like finds lessons or inspiration in the success of others. That's how that mindset's outlined. And as a result of all those things, people reach higher levels of achievement. Uh, and with that comes a greater sense of free will. And all of that sounds great. And I think most people that you talk to or want to hire will probably demonstrate a lot of these things. An interesting thing to me is like a lot of our engineers don't fall into the older fallacy of basically boxing themselves in and believing that they're only here to engineer. Yeah, always like to see as engineers push back on design or push back on product decisions and I think that comes from the idea that they're not comfortable necessarily being boxed in they're, they really want to grow outside of their role and that they want to understand the full context of what they're doing uh, is that something you deliberately worked on or like how does the relationship between say product people designers and engineers how is it different at Intercom or how did you ever think about that yeah great question like one way I think about it is that we're all kind of reiterating what I said earlier we're all product people we're all our motivations are to create this great product. We're proud when we do that. I'll probably be a little bit proud when I create some beautiful code, but it's really the thing it enables that gives me the fulfillment. And I think that's true for all all disciplines. Like it's not the 
fancy Photoshop file. It's the thing that's working, that's making people's lives better in some way. So not all people think like that. Not all companies structure themselves like that. A lot of uh, engineers are more orientated around, often as a side effect of the way things are structured, but they're more orientated around the technology. They obsess about the technology. They invest in and speculate about how the technology will evolve. And they have, like that's where all their opinions are directed. And for some types of companies, like that's actually where the product almost is focused. But for any like quite interactive things, that's not the case. So I guess, like, what do we do differently? I think, like, most of my career before Intercom, the main thing that was different was that, you know, we were still ultimately trying to build a product. But the thing that was different were that all these different disciplines were separated. They're, like, siloed. You might not even know who the person that designed the thing that you're building is or who the product manager is and what they actually do and like how does that feel like as an engineer does like just a work order arrive in your email and you're just like all right well better go yeah it's like you're you're constantly in that position of trying to like figure you know so i guess some people perhaps does more in that fixed mindset or whatever will just see that as okay i'll follow orders or whatever but uh for me i always constantly felt found myself in that like situation where I'm like try want to understand why it's like hey like craving this, context this like is kind that. of interesting it's basically that it's all it's all about context really and being in situations where you're like I think I know what the context is and if I'm right then I think there's a better approach here but you haven't been part of the conversations that would enable that and then of course there's probably a way to retrofit that conversation somewhere but it's a tremendous amount of friction and a slow process so I guess the thing that's different is that we put those people together and we'll talk about like kind of what that leads to. I think a, like a combining trend has been how we ship software. So like 20 years ago, companies released software on like very long cycles, like yearly or whatever, and the software processes that existed adapted around that. And we could talk a length about waterfall, uh, but the premise around all of those to me is some either like naive or ignorance around the fact or the idea that we actually know what the right answer is. Right. So we like we're going to release this thing in a year. We know what we're doing. The feedback we know what cycle. the world looks like in a year. Yeah. We, we're certain about everything. Yeah. So we 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 can serialize everything. Like let's figure out what problem we're solving. Let's design the thing. Pass that to the engineers, and it's just like. It, it sounds perfect, and it probably is if you're building like a, a bridge or a car or something, I don't know. Uh, but software both lends itself to the ability to be wrong and change, unlike a bridge maybe. But also I feel like it's such a new medium that we're more often wrong than right. And the important thing is your ability to iterate towards right. And how you structure your teams can either help or hinder this. So engineers, designers, and PMs being together uh, means that they're closer, they can all share the same context and they can communicate freely and have, along with delivering software regularly, have tight feedback loops and do that iteration thing towards the right solution rather than guessing. What's the, I mean, like, I presume in the order orgs they're not doing it just to be stubborn. Like, what, what's the drawback of, of, of doing it your way as in how, forming software teams consi- like with designers, engineers and PMs? Yeah, like I, I think historically there might be different reasons, but folks that do it today, like the kind of classic trade-off for me, which manifests less for engineers than, say, designers, is the idea that in the structure I described there, we might have one designer on a team, and that person is now in their discipline quite isolated. Their manager is probably less connected to the work they're doing, but also they have less opportunity to 
benefit from the input of peers who might have the right context. Right. And there's and, and there's definitely ways that we you can and we certainly do try to mitigate that. Just thinking about the scale of Intercom over the last four years, like I presume like you've learned a few things about hiring and team management performance, morale, all that stuff as we've gone from like I guess a couple of engineers to ninety plus. What are the key repurposable things uh, if, if you're to do it again? Like, w- what areas do you need to focus on? What, what lessons have you learned the hardest? Uh, good question. <laughs> Trying to grab a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of joked to myself at one point that like I hadn't transitioned from an engineer to a manager, like transitioned from like an engineer to a recruiter or something. Right. <laughs> like the the hiring is kind of interesting. And I think like if I the benefit of hindsight and just even understood what to expect, it might have been helpful for me. But when I look back, there's been like a couple of distinct different phases. You have the early days where you're going to end up, uh, you know, the company is small. It's a huge risk to join. While you might be excited, the reality is that most startups actually die, and particularly in those early stages. So your pool of people that, A, that you reach because no one's heard of you, and B, that will take a risk is small. And it tends to be people that can offset some of that risk because they know you and they know that you're, you're, what you're doing is legit and they might have the context. So you hire it from people you know, basically. And that can get you quite far relatively at the time. But then you get to this point where you've kind of tapped out on that to some degree and uh, you still don't have a brand to rely on. Uh, you know, you don't have much inbound interest. So you go into this phase where you're like knocking on doors, basically. Yeah. And you're trying to sell the thing you're doing. You're trying to find people who are have that particular fit for the the risk and opportunity. And that phase is really interesting. Like that's the phase I identified as like that recruiter phase where you're like very actively recruiting. Constantly selling basically. Yeah. Yeah. And like I think th- there's a parallel in the product. Like I think the the early days it was friends and old colleagues that used the product. And then you're like uh, you know, knocking on doors. And then the third phase is where but the company brand establishes and we we invest in the engineering brand and you know we've got local awareness and people start coming to you. Yeah. And then that, that phase is kind of good. I think the thing that you learn, and again, a parallel in, in the kind of product and marketing side, is that you've got this inbound demand. It's, it can be hard to shape. And so the parallel might be, wouldn't it be great if they were all customers that pay you a million bucks a year or whatever? Yeah. Or wouldn't it be great if they were all experienced senior folks rather than interns or whatever yeah. it might be? So, uh, But we did quite well in that phase of attracting quite talented folks and the phase we're in now is where I feel almost we're coming back to the deliberate recruiting knocking on doors phase where we know a lot more about the specific folks we need and therefore in the absence of some magical way to attract them to us we have to go find them. Right so it's a lot more research. Yeah. If you could talk to like uh, I guess like 30 whatever year old Dara four years ago or for any of our listeners who are probably first engineering hire at a startup that they believe is going to grow and scale what would you advise them or, or specifically like you know were there things that you think you could you know you could have learned from somebody else along the way if you're considering embarking on something like this my general advice for like a role change or whatever like i've kind of again realized this in hindsight but i, I kind of look for three things possibly the, the most important thing that people sometimes skip particularly if they're like running away from a job they don't like or whatever but they skip the bit of the thing that they're going to work on 
are they genuinely excited about the problem they're going to solve, the mission? Do they believe in it and have a passion for it? I've seen that before. Like, it's like a rebound career. Like People are just like, they yeah. hated one, so they jump onto the next one without really vetting the next one. They're just happy to be rid of the one they had. Exactly. And that's like probably one of the most important ingredients. But the other two are very important as well, which are, to me at least, the people. And, you know, the people you're going to join, are they like-minded? Do they value the same things? Um, are they the types of people that you'll learn from? And then their approach and mindset, like the way they approach their work, uh, what they care about, what they value, how they do things. And for something to be long-term sustainable, you've got to have all, all three of those. So just as like base level advice, seek that out. And like that's a good sort of foundation for success, at least. Something like Intercom or any like ambitious thing that ordeal you'll take on, it's a long haul. It's not going to be two years and you, you'll like retire to desert island or whatever and with that in mind i think there's kind of a couple of bits that are really important first of all you should make sure that you're enjoying it you know it should be fun you should enjoy it it should be challenging it should be hard but it should be fun and rewarding uh you should be doing things that fulfill you i think the other thing that i've invested in uh, maybe better of late is to do things that preserve and increase your energy if you think of a role like this as something that'll be five to ten years you don't want to burn out and you can work as hard as you want for a number of years, but if you're not sustaining yourself, you'll eventually burn out. So for me, that's like time doing the things I like, exercising, that kind of thing. But for others, it'll be different things, just things that give you energy. And you'll get them in work and outside of work. Looking back four years, any regrets? <laughs> uh, you wouldn't tell me. <laughs> cool. No, no, not really. Like, I, I, I think benefit of hindsight is great you don't have it unfortunately so you do the best you can i think the biggest kind of guiding principle to avoid regrets is to take an approach where it's okay to be wrong but to do that in a way that you act fast and learn fast you know you can't regret being wrong if you can adapt from it yeah makes sense cool well dara thanks very much and uh, back to work cool thanks you've been listening to the inside intercom podcast for more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.